Chapter Twenty Three of the Armorer's Prentices. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adele Pinerolis. The Armorer's Prentices by Charlotte M. Young. Chapter Twenty Three: Unwelcome Preferment. I am a poor fallen man, unworthy now to be thy lord and master. Seek the king. That sum I pray may never set. Shakespeare Matters flowed on peaceably with Stephen and Dennet. The alderman saw no reason to repent his decision, hastily as it had been made. Stephen gave himself no unseemly airs of presumption, but worked on as one whose heart was in the business, and Dennet rewarded her father's trust by her discretion. They were happily married in the summer of 1522, as soon as Stephen's apprenticeship was over, and from that time he was in the position of the master's son, with more and more devolving on him as Tibble became increasingly rheumatic every winter, and the alderman himself grew in flesh and in distaste to exertion. Ambrose, meanwhile, prospered with his master, and could easily have obtained some office in the law courts that would have enabled him to make a home of his own, but if he had the least inclination to the love of woman, it was all merged in a silent distant worship of sweet pale Margaret, rare pale Margaret, the like-minded daughter of Sir Thomas More, an affection which was so entirely devotion at a shrine that it suffered no shock when Sir Thomas at length consented to his daughter's marriage with Sir William Roper. Ambrose was the only person who ever received any communication from Giles Headley. They were few and far between, but when Stephen Gardiner returned from his embassy to Pope Clement VII, who was then at Orvieto, one of the suite reported to Ambrose how astonished he had been by being accosted in good English by one of the imperial men-at-arms, who were guarding his holiness in actual, though unconfessed, captivity. This person had sent his commendations to Ambrose, and likewise a laborious writ of writing, which looked as if he were fast forgetting the art. It bade Ambrose inform his mother and all his friends and kin that he was well and coming to preferment, and enclosed for Aldonza a small mother-of-pearl cross blessed by the Pope. Giles added that he should bring her finer gifts by and by. Seven years' constancy! It gave quite a respectability to Galva's love, and Aldonza was still ready and patient while waiting in attendance on her beloved mistress. Ambrose lived on in the colony at Chelsea, sometimes attending his master, especially on diplomatic missions, and generally acting as librarian and foreign secretary, and obtaining sub-notice from Erasmus on the great scholar's visit to Chelsea. Under such guidance, Ambrose's opinions had settled down a good deal, and he was a disappointment to Tibble, whose views advanced proportionately as he worked less, and read and thought more. He so bitterly resented and deplored the burning of Tyndale's Bible, that there was constant fear that he might bring on himself the same fate, especially as he treasured his own copy and studied it constantly. The reform that Wolsey had intended to effect when he obtained the legatine authority seemed to fall into the background among political interests, and his efforts had as yet no result save the suppression of some useless and ill-managed small religious houses 
to endow his magnificent project of york college at oxford with a feeder at ipswich his native town he was waiting to obtain the papacy when he would deal better with the abuses randall once asked him if he were not waiting to be king of heaven when he could make root and branch work at once hal had never so nearly incurred a flogging and in the meantime another influence was at work an influence only heard of at first in whispered jests which made loyal-hearted dennet blush and look indignant but which soon grew to sad earnest as she could not but avow when she beheld the stately pomp of the two cardinals wolsey and campeggio sweep up to the blackfriars convent to sit in judgment on the marriage of poor queen catherine out on them she said so many learned men to set their wits against one poor woman and she heartily rejoiced when they came to no decision and the pope was appealed to as to understanding all the explanations that ambrose brought from time to time she called them quirks and quiddities and left them to her father and tibble to discuss in their chimney corners they had seen nothing of the jester for a good while for he was with wolsey who was attending the king on a progress through the midland shires when the cardinal returned to open the law courts as chancellor at the beginning of the autumn term still randall kept away from home perhaps because he had forebodings that he could not bear to mention. On the evening of that very day, London rang with the tidings that the great seal had been taken from the cardinal, and he was under orders to yield up his noble mansion of York House and retire to Esher. Nay, it was reported that he was to be imprisoned in the tower, and the next day the Thames was crowded with more than a thousand boats filled with people, expecting to see him landed at the traitor's gate and much disappointed when his barge turned towards putney in the afternoon ambrose came to the dragon court even as stephen figured now as a handsome prosperous young freeman of the city ambrose looked well in the sober black apparel and neat ruff of a lawyer's clerk clerk indeed to the first lawyer in the kingdom for the news had spread before him that sir thomas more had become lord chancellor thou art come to bear us word of thy promotion for thy master's is thy own said the alderman heartily as he entered shaking hands with him never was the great seal in better hands tis true indeed your worship said ambrose though it will lay a heavy charge on him and divert him from much that he loveth better still i came to ask of my sister dennet a supper and a bed for the night as i have been on business for him and can scarce get back to chelsea and welcome said dennet little giles and bess have been wearying for their uncle i must not toy with them yet said ambrose i have a message for my aunt brother wilt thou walk down to the temple with me before supper yea and how is it with master randall asked dennet be he gone with my lord cardinal he is made over to the king said ambrose briefly tis that which i must tell his wife have with thee then said Stephen, linking his arm into that of his brother, for to be together was still as great an enjoyment to them as in forest days. And on the way Ambrose told what he had not been willing to utter in full assembly in the hall. He had been sent by his master with a letter of condolence to the fallen cardinal, and likewise of inquiry into some necessary business connected with the chancellorship. Wolsey had not had time to answer before embarking, but as sir thomas had vouched for the messenger's ability and trustiness 
He had bidden Ambrose come into his barge, and receive his instructions. Thus Ambrose had landed with him, just as a messenger came riding in haste from the king, with a kind greeting, assuring his old friend that his seeming disgrace was only for a time, and for political reasons, and sending him a ring in token thereof. The cardinal had fallen on his knees to receive the message, had snatched a gold chain and some precious relic from his own neck to remore the messenger, and then, casting about for some gift for the king, By ill luck, said Ambrose, his eye lit upon our uncle, and he instantly declared that he would bestow patch, as the court chooses to call him, on the king. Well, as thou canst guess, Hal is hotly wroth at the treatment of his lord, whom he truly loveth, and he flung himself before the cardinal, and besought that he might not be sent from his good lord. But the cardinal was only chafed at aught that gainsayed him, and all he did was to say he would have no more a day he had made his gift. Get thee gone, he said as if he had been ordering off a horse or dog. Well a day, it was hard to brook the sight, and Hal's blood was off. He flatly refused to go, saying he was the cardinal's servant, but no villain nor serf to be thus made over without his own will. He was in the right there, returned Stephen hotly. Yea, save that by playing the fool, poor fellow, he hath yielded up the rights of a wise man. Anyway, all that he got by it was that the cardinal bade two of his yeomen lay hands on him and bear him off. Then there came upon him that restless mood, which, I trow, banished him long ago from the forest, and brought him into the motley. He fought with them with all his force, and broke away once, as if that were use for man and motley, but he was bound at last, and borne off by six of them to Windsor. "'And thou stoodst by and beheld it,' cried Stephen. "'Nay, what could I have done, save to make his plight worse, "'and forfeit all chance of yet speaking to him? "'Thou wert ever cruel. "'I wot that I could not have borne it,' said Stephen. "'They told the story to Perinel, "'who was on the whole elated by her husband's promotion, "'declaring that the king loved him well, "'and that he would soon come to his senses.' though for a wise man he certainly had too much of the fool, even as he had too much of the wise man for the fool. She became anxious, however, as the weeks passed by without hearing of or from him, and at length Ambrose confessed his uneasiness to his kind master, and obtained leave to attend him on the next summons to Windsor. Ambrose could not find his uncle at first. Randall, used to pervade York House, and turn up everywhere when least expected, did not appear among the superior serving-men and secretaries with whom his nephew ranked, and of course there was no access to the state apartments. Sir Thomas, however, told Ambrose that he had seen Quipsome Hal among the other jesters, but that he seemed dull and dejected. Then Ambrose beheld from a window a cruel sight, for the other fools, three in number, were surrounding Hal, baiting and teasing him, triumphing over him, in fact for having formerly outstone them, while he stood among them like a big dog worried by little curs, against whom he disdained to use his strength. Ambrose, unable to bear this, ran downstairs to endeavour to interfere, but before he could find his way to the spot, on arrival at the gate had attracted the tormentors, and Ambrose found his uncle leaning against the wall alone. He looked thin and wan, the light was gone out of his black eyes, and his countenance was in sad contrast to his gay and absurd attire. He scarcely cheered up when his nephew spoke to him, though he was glad to hear of Perinel. 
He said he knew not when he should see her again, for he had been unable to secure his suit of ordinary garments, so that even if the king came to London, or he could elude the other fools, he could not get out to visit her. He was no better than a prisoner here. He only marveled that the king retained so wretched a jester, with so heavy a heart. "'Once thou wast in favour, said Ambrose, "'methought thou couldst have availed thyself of it to speak for the Lord Cardinal.' "'What? A senseless cur whom he kicked from him?' said Randall. "'Twas that took all spirit from me, boy. "'I, who thought he loved me, as I love him to this day, "'to send me to be sport for his foes. "'I think of it day and night, and I have not a gibe left under my belt.' "'Nay,' said Ambrose, "'it may have been that the Cardinal hoped to secure a true friend at the king's ear.' as well as to provide for thee. Had he but said so, nay, perchance he trusted to thy sharp wit. A gleam came into Hal's eyes. It might be so. Thou wast always a toward lad, Ambrose, and if so, I was cur and fool indeed to balk him. Therewith one of the other fools stamped back, exhibiting a silver crown that had just been flung to him, mopping and mowing, and demanding when Patch would have wit to gain the light. Whereto Hal replied by pointing to Ambrose, and declared that the gentleman had given him better than fifty crowns. And that night, Sir Thomas told Ambrose that the quipsome one had recovered himself, had been more brilliant than ever, and had quite eclipsed the other fools. On the next opportunity, Ambrose contrived to pack in his cloak-bag the cap and loose garment in which his uncle was wont to cover his motley. The court was still at Windsor, but nearly the whole of Sir Thomas' stay elapsed without Ambrose being able to find his uncle. Wolsey had been very ill, and the king had relented enough to send his own physician to attend him. Ambrose began to wonder if Hal could have found any plea for rejoining his old master, but in the last hour of his stay he found Hal curled listlessly up on a window-seat of a gallery, his head resting with his hand. "'Uncle, good uncle, at last, thou art sick?' "'Sick at heart, lad,' said Hal, looking up. "'Yea, I took thy counsel. "'I plucked up the spirit. "'I made Harry laugh, as of old, "'though my heart smote me, "'as I thought how he was wont to be answered by my master. "'I even brooked to jest with the night crow, "'as my own poor lord called this name Boleyn. "'And lo you now, when his grace was touched at my lord's sickness, "'I durst say there was one sure elixir such as he, "'to wit a gold Harry.' and that a king's touch was a sovereign cure for other disorders than the king's evil. Harry smiled, and in ten minutes more would have taken horse for Esher, had not Madame Nan claimed his word to ride out hawking with her. And next she sendeth me a warning by one of her pert maids, that I should be whipped if I spoke to his grace of unfitting manners. My flesh could brook no more, and like a born natural, I made answer that Nan Boleyn was no mistress of mine to bid me hold a tongue that had spoken sooth to her betters. Thereupon, what think you, boy? The grooms came and soundly flogged me for uncomely speech of my Lady Anne. I, that was eighteen years of my Lord Cardinal, and none laid hand on me. Yea, I was beaten, and then shut up in a dog-hole for three days on bread and water, with none to speak to, but the other fools jeering at me like a rogue in a pillory. Ambrose could hardly speak for hot grief and indignation, but he wrung his uncle's hand and whispered that he had hid the loose gown behind the arras of his chamber, but he could do no more, for he was summoned to attend his master, and his servant further thrust in to say, Concern yourself not for that rogue, sir, he hath been saucy, 
and must mend his manners, or he will have worse. Away, kind sir, said Hal. You can do the poor fool no farther good, but only bring the pack about the ears of the mangy hound. And he sang a stave appropriated by a greater man than he. Then let the stricken deer go weep, the heart ungalled play. The only hope that Ambrose or his good master could devise for poor Randolph was that Sir Thomas should want his opportunity and beg the fool from the king, who might part with him as a child gives away the once coveted toy that has failed in his hands. But the request would need circumspection, for all had already felt the change that had taken place in the temper of the king, since Henry had resolutely undertaken that the wrong should be the right, and Ambrose could not but dread the effect of desperation on a man whose nature had in it a vein of impatient recklessness. It was after dinner, and Dennet, with her little boy and girl, was on the steps dispensing the salt fish, broken bread, and pottage of the Lenten meal to the daily troop who came for her alms, when, among them, she saw, somewhat to her alarm, a gypsy man who was talking to little Giles. The boy, a stout fellow of six, was astride on the balustrade, looking up eagerly into the face of the man, who began imitating the note of a blackbird. Dennet, remembering the evil pretensities of the gypsy race, called hastily to her little son to come down and return to her side, but little Giles was unwilling to move, and called to her, "'Oh, mother, come! He hath a bird call!' In some perturbation lest the man might be calling her bird away, Dennet descended the steps. She was about to utter a sharp rebuke, but Giles held out his hand imploringly, and she paused a moment to hear the full sweet note of the oozel cock with a tawny orange bill closely imitated on a tiny bone whistle. "'He will sell it to me for two farthings,' cried the boy, "'and teach me to sing on it like all the birds.' "'Yea, good mistress,' said the gypsy, "'I can whistle a tune that the little master, "'I and others might be fain to hear.' Therewith, spite of the wild dress, Dennet knew the eyes and the voice, and perhaps the blackbird's note had awakened echoes in other minds, for she saw Stephen, in his working dress, come out to the door of the shop where he continued to do all the finer work which had formerly fallen to Tibble's share. She lifted her boy from his perch, and bade him take the stranger to his father, who would no doubt give him the whistle, and thus, having without exciting attention separated the fugitive from the rest of her pensioners, she made haste to dismiss them. She was not surprised that little Giles came running back to her, producing unearthly notes on the instrument, and telling her that father had taken the gypsy into his workshop, and said they would teach him bird songs by and by. Steve, Steve, had been the first words uttered when the boy was out of hearing. Hast thou a smith's apron and plenty of smut to bestow on me? None can tell what Harry's mood may be when he finds I've given him the slip. That is the reason I durst not go back to my poor dame. We will send to let her know. I thought I guessed what the black oozel was. I mind how thou didst make the notes for us when we were no bigger than my guiles. Thou hast a kind heart, Stephen. Here, is thy furnace hot enough to make a speedy end of this same greasy gypsy doublet? I trust not the varlet with whom I bartered it for my motley and a fine bargain he had of what I trust never to wear again to the end of my days. Make me a smith complete, Stephen, and then I will tell thee my story. We must call Kitten to counsel, ere we can do that fully, said Stephen. In a few minutes Hal Randall was, to all appearance, 
a very shabby and grimy smith, and then he took breath to explain his anxiety and alarm. Once again, hearing that the cardinal was to be exiled to York, he had ventured on a sorry jest about old friends and old wine being better than new. But the king, who had once been open to plain speaking, was now incensed, threatened, and swore at him. Moreover, one of the fools told him, in the way of boasting, that he had heard Master Cromwell, formerly the cardinal's secretary, informing the king that this rogue was no true natural at all, was blessed, or cursed, with as good an understanding as other folk, as was well known in the cardinal's household, and that he had no doubt been sent to serve as a spy, so that he was to be esteemed a dangerous person, and had best be put under ward. Hal had not been able to discover whether Cromwell had communicated his name, but he suspected that it might be known to that acute person, and he could not tell whether his compeer spoke out of a sort of good-natured desire to warn him, or simply to triumph in his disgrace, and leer at him for being an impostor. At any rate, being now desperate, he covered his party-coloured raiment with the gown Ambrose had brought, made a perilous descent from a window in the twilight, scaled the wall with the agility that seemed to have returned to him, and reached Windsor Forest. There, falling on a camp of gypsies, he had availed himself of old experiences in his wild Shirley days, and had obtained a change of guard, his handsome motley being really a prize to the wanderers. Thus he had been able to reach London, but he did not feel any confidence that if he were pursued to the gypsy tent he would not be betrayed. In this, his sagacity was not at fault, for he had scarcely made his explanation when there was a knocking at the outer gate, and a demand to enter in the name of the king, and to see Alderman Sir Giles Headley. Several of the stout figures of the yeomen of the king's guard were seen crossing the court, and Stephen, committing the charge of his uncle to Kit, threw off his apron, washed his face, and went up to the hall, not very rapidly, for he suspected that since his father-in-law knew nothing of the arrival, he would best baffle the inquiries by sincere denials. And Dennet, with her sharp woman's wit, venting danger, had whisked herself and her children out of the hall at the first moment, and taken them down to the kitchen, where modelling with a batch of dough occupied both of them. Meanwhile the alderman flatly denied the presence of the jester, or the harbouring of the gypsy. He allowed that the jester was of kin to his son-in-law, but the good man averred in all honesty that he knew not of any escape, and was absolutely certain that no such person was in the court. Then, as Stephen entered, doffing his cap to the king's officer, the alderman continued, There, fair son, is what these gentlemen have come about. Thy kinsmen, it seemeth, have fled from Windsor, and his grace is mightily incensed. They say he changed clothes with a gypsy, and was traced hither this morn, but I have told them the thing is impossible. Will the gentlemen search? asked Stephen. The gentlemen did search, but they only saw the smiths in full work, and in small-bones as forge, there was a roaring, glowing furnace, with a bare-armed fellow feeding it with coals, so that it fairly scorched them, and gave them double relish for the good wine and beer that was put out on the table to do honour to them. Stephen had just with all civility seen them off the premises, when Perronel came sobbing into the court. They had visited her first, for Cromwell had evidently known of Randall's haunts. They had turned her little house upside down, and had threatened her hotly in case she harboured a disloyal spy, who deserved hanging. 
she came to consult Stephen, for the notion of her husband wandering about as a sort of outlaw was almost as terrible as the threat of his being hanged. Stephen beckoned her to a storeroom full of gaunt figures of armor upon blocks, and there brought up to her his extremely grimy new hand. There was much gladness between them, but the future had to be considered. Perronel had a little hoard, the amount of which she was too shrewd to name to any one, even her husband, but she considered it sufficient to enable him to fulfill the cherished dream of his life, of retiring to some small farm near his old home, and she was for setting off at once. Harry Randall declared that he could not go without having offered his services to his old master. He had heard of his good lord as sick, sad, and deserted by those whom he had cherished, and the faithful heart was so true in its loyalty that no persuasion could prevail in making it turn south. Nay, said the wife, did he not cast thee off himself, and serve thee like one of his dogs? How canst thou be bound to him? There's the rub, sighed Hal. He sent me to the king, deeming that he should have one full of faithful love to speak a word on his behalf. And I, brutish oaf as I was, must needs take it amiss, and sulk and mope till the occasion was past, and that viper Cromwell was there to back up the woman Boleyn and poison his grace's ear. As if a man must not have a spirit to be angered by such treatment. Thou forgettest, good wife, no man, but a fool, and to be entreated as such. Be that as it may, to York I must. I have eaten of my lord's bread too many years, and had too much kindness from him in the days of his glory, to seek mine own ease now in his adversity. Thou wouldst have a poor bargain of me when my heart is away. Perinal saw that thus would it be, and that this was one of the points on which, to her mind, her husband was more than half a veritable fool after all. There had long been a promise that Stephen should, in some time of slack employment, make a visit to his old comrade, Edmund Burgess, at York, and as some new tools and patterns had to be conveyed thither, a sudden resolution was come to, in family conclave, that Stephen himself should convey them, taking his uncle with him as a serving-man, to attend to the horses. The alderman gave full consent. He had always wished Stephen to see York, while he himself, with Tibble Steelman, was able to tend to the business, and while he pronounced Randall to have a heart of gold, well worth guarding, he still was glad when the risk was over of the king's hearing that the runaway jester was harboured at the dragon. Then it did not like the journey for her husband, for to her mind it was perilous, but she had a warm affection for his uncle ever since their expedition to Richmond together, and she did her best to reconcile the murmuring and wounded Perronel by praises of Randall, a true and noble heart, and that as to setting her aside for the cardinal, who had heeded him so little, such faithfulness only made her more secure of his true-heartedness towards her. Perronel was moreover to break up her business, dispose of her house, and await her husband's return at the dragon. Stephen came back after a happy month with his friend, stored with wondrous tales and descriptions which would last the children for a month. He had seen his uncle present himself to the cardinal at Cowood Castle. It had been a touching meeting. Hal could hardly restrain his tears when he saw how Wolsey's sturdy form had wasted, and his round, ruddy cheeks had fallen away, while the attitude in which he sat in his chair was listless and weary, though he fitfully exerted himself with his old vigor. Hal, on his side, in the dark, plain dress of a citizen, 
was hardly recognizable for not only had he likewise grown thinner and his brown cheeks more hollow but his hair had become almost white during his miserable weeks at windsor though he was not much over forty years old he came up the last of a number who presented themselves for the archiepiscopal blessing as wolsey sat under a large tree in cowood park wolsey gave it with his raised fingers without special heed but therewith hal threw himself on the ground kissed his feet and cried my lord my dear lord your pardon what hast done fellow speak said the cardinal grovel not thus we will be merciful ah my lord said randall lifting himself up but with clasped hands and tearful eyes i did not serve you as i ought with the king but if you will forgive me and take me back how now how couldst thou serve me what as hal made a familiar gesture thou art not the poor fool quips and patch how comest thou here methought i had provided well for thee in making thee over to the king ah my lord i was fool fool indeed but all my jests failed me how could i make sport for your enemies and thou hast come thou hast left the kings to follow my fallen fortunes said wolsey my poor boy he who is sitting in sackcloth and ashes needs no jester nay my lord nor can i find one just to break would you but let me be your meanest horse-boy your scullion hal's voice was cut short by tears as the cardinal abandoned him to one hand the other was drying eyes that seldom wept my faithful hal he said this is love indeed and stephen ere he came away had seen his uncle fully established as a rational creature and by his true name as one of the personal attendants on the cardinal's bedchamber and treated with the affection he well deserved wolsey had really seemed cheered by his affection and was devoting himself to the care of his hitherto and neglected and even unvisited diocese in a way that delighted the hearts of the yorkshiremen the first idea was that perronel should join her husband at york but safe modes of travelling were not easy to be found and before any satisfactory escort offered there were rumours that made it prudent to delay as autumn advanced it was known that the earl of northumberland had been sent to attach the cardinal of high treason then ensued other reports that the great cardinal had sunk and died on his way to london for trial and at last one dark winter evening a sorrowful man stumbled up the steps of the dragon and as he came into the bright light of the fire and perronel sprang to meet him he sank into a chair and wept aloud he had been one of those who had lifted the broken-hearted wolsey from his mule in the cloister of leicester abbey he had carried him to his bed watched over him and supported him as the abbot of leicester gave him the last sacraments he had heard and treasured up those mournful words which are wolsey's legacy to the world had i but served my god as i have served my king he would not have forsaken me in my old age for himself he had the dying man's blessing an assurance that nothing had so much availed to cheer in these sad hours as his faithful love now paramount might do what she would with him he cared not and what she did was to set forth for hampshire on a pair of stout mules with a strong serving man behind them End of chapter twenty three recording by adelphi funeral Lake.